Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. Hey guys, welcome to Unboxed. I'm Connie Nam, founder of Astrid and Mew and your host. Today, we have one of our OG influencers, Lorna Lux who is also a founder of a high-end fashion brand called LA Space. Lorna shares how she grew an incredibly engaged audience on Instagram and how she took that to launch her own brand. I would do anything and meet anyone. No one was off limits for me. I didn't post on Instagram to like make money out of it. I just really liked it. We had the customer. We just needed to create the clothes. Hi, Lorna. How are you? Hello. This is exciting. Yeah, really exciting. I'm so excited because we met, uh, when was this? Eight years ago? Yeah, a long time ago. Yes, when I hosted our very first influencer breakfast, you were there Mm. at Chiltern Firehouse. And both of us have grown so much. Yeah, and I think as well, you were quite a new brand at that point. We were. We Um, were a very niche find. Yeah, you were. And the price point was good. And there wasn't really any competition back then that I remember. No, there wasn't. So it was quite exciting to see it begin. Yeah. It was quite a bougie little breakfast, that. It was. Little Chilton Firehouse breakfast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was a huge investment at that point. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, so it's so nice to see your journey. And obviously, like, we've been working very closely. And it's so nice to see you in person after eight years. And, like, I want to hear all about that journey from being an influencer to now a brand founder, LA Space. Congratulations. Thank you. It actually does sound quite surreal because I think for such a long time, I had the vision of having a brand. But, of course, to get there, it took a, a fair old while. But when I met you, I think I was still, I wasn't really a commercial venture. I was an influencer, but I wasn't making money from it. I was just kind of pottering along. Really? Yeah, I think back then it was very difficult to commercialize your socials. Yeah. And I think I had quite a few followers back then, but it just wasn't what it is now. No, it wasn't because I think you had less than 100,000 followers at that point. Yeah, maybe, yeah. And now you've got 1.4 million. Yeah, yeah. And it's been quite steady as that. Mm. So it's not just been like real million followers in a year or anything. Yeah. There's been a really steady like progression yeah. for me. And I think brands paying for influencers content is quite new as well, isn't it? Yeah. And of course now with influencer marketing kind of being like the kind of gold standard, isn't it, for establishing a brand, which I'm learning myself. <laughs> Back then, it was a little bit Wild West. You were kind of, there weren't the analytics there were. No. I don't even think I had access to analytics back then. So you inviting me to a breakfast, you were taking a punt on me as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of gamble, wasn't it? Well, it was a great gamble. Oh, thank you. So tell me about your journey, because obviously, like, you're younger than me, but you were older than the other influencers like, yeah, that, was. that was sitting on the table. And I just felt like you were that maturity, not in how mm-hmm. you looked, you still looked young, but... <laughs> You just had this confidence. Do you think your prior experience as a flight attendant and being older helped in, you know, becoming more commercial or like, I guess, um, being more confident in speaking to brand founders or directors? I definitely think being cabin crew, you just, you worked with different crew each flight. So having that bravery to just work with people you didn't know, that is definitely useful in this game because of course, every time you turn up to an event or a breakfast like we did, and you don't know anybody, you've just got to kind of throw yourself into it. So yeah, you're right, actually. Probably in that sense, it really helped. And I wasn't shy. And I'm not a shy girl anyway. I'm such a Leo. 
No, no I'm a big believer. Are you a Leo? Yeah. My husband's a Leo. Oh, I was oh, such a believer. You're, you're perfect for influencing. Do you think? <laughs> you love showing off and like, getting attention, it. right? There's yeah. that innate ability to be quiet when you need to be, but I think fundamentally I like being yeah. front and center of attention. I love Leos. That's why I love you. Yeah, I think I do get on with other Leos, like fiery signs. Yeah, I think the cabin crew thing, obviously it's for, primarily it's for customer service. That's what the job was. So having that customer service ability to just read people and quickly attune to what the vibe of the mood or, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, pretty much you can throw me with anyone and I'll find some kind of point of reference that we can both talk about. So that was quite handy. And I think I was that girl that desperately wanted to make it a success. So I, I would do anything and meet anyone. No one was off limits for me. I wasn't somebody that had kind of pinpointed a certain number of people I wanted to make friends with. I just wanted to be everyone's friend. So I would turn up to the opening of an envelope and just network. And networking's been key for my success, I think. Where does that drive come from? I think the drive that came initially was because I'd had a really rough few years. I'd been, I'd had anorexia and I'd gone through that kind of journey of trying to get well. And this was really my first new thing to focus on that wasn't related to my eating. So I really wanted to find a hobby that I loved. Back then it was a hobby for me. It was not anything, like, I didn't look at it as a job. I didn't post on Instagram to like make money out of it. I just really liked it. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere that being on Instagram helped you overcome yeah, eating disorder, which sounds it's completely crazy. counterintuitive. I think the way I would describe it is that I was quite insular when I was in the depths of my eating disorder because obviously anywhere with food and drink, I was avoiding, actively avoiding. And then as my influencing or my Instagram took off, the content I wanted to create to stay kind of relevant started to include those those shots where you're taking, you know, a picture in a coffee shop or, you know, you're in a restaurant. And so John and I would go to these restaurants, him knowing that I was so kind of like thrown by the food and the experience of being watched to be eating. But actually I was going through recovery at the same time, forcing myself to do these things for the gram, to get the capture, to get that content. So actually it dragged me away from being very insular and isolating myself. It forced me to get back out there. Yeah, and I then, love that story because people tend to think social media equates, you know, bad, ment- bad yeah. for mental health. But in this case, it seems like it's really cured you. I mean, it really did. And I didn't really have many mates because I think one the first thing you do when you're in the depths of a, any kind of addiction is you, you lose touch with people because mm. they're getting in the way, really, of you and your addiction. So I'd lost a lot of friends. And then when I got on social media and I was a big community player, I would reply to my DMs, which I still do now. I'd reply to my messages reply to any comments on my content and I started to make friends from it so I had all these mates from all over the world I mean I'm still mates with a lot of people that I met you know in 2014 15 when I first joined even though we've never met but we chat daily wow that's incredible it's absolutely mental I've got mates that are in like America I've never met them if I if they walk past me in the street I probably won't recognize them wow so how do you engage with them do you actually talk to them on a phone call or is no, it just, we just chat DM? on DM just texting and wow that's incredible and like commenting on each other's content which is yeah so it's a new for me it was a savior if you like yeah I guess it's a new way of engaging and making friends yeah and watching some of them thrive some of them obviously don't do social the way I do it but seeing some of them build brands like me yeah it's exciting to watch yeah with like-minded people yeah and obviously you've been so successful as an influencer and when I look at your content I just love the way you talk and engage it's so authentic what do you think is the secret sauce to being so successful and growing your followers um 
exponentially. You say gradually, but I don't think like many people have grown to that extent. I definitely think that early adopter mentality of doing it before it became the big thing that it is now. So I had a bit of a leg up. And also before lockdown, I never spoke to camera. So people didn't really know my personality. It was really all visual. It was only when we went into lockdown and we weren't allowed to go out of our houses. And I remember saying to John, oh my God, like, I'm a street style influencer. I can't go out and stand in the street. What am I going to do? And I eventually settled on just doing chatty stories each morning. I would just get on and do my makeup. But I think because I was coming on looking pretty ropey, I'd, you know, I'd come on with no makeup, no nothing on my face. Those are the best content. And it's fascinating to watch. I didn't realize then how interesting it would be to watch. But I think because we were so used to seeing everything perfect online pre-lockdown, and everything being so glossy, myself included. I think it struck a chord with people that they were interested in. I grew quite, like, a lot, actually, in lockdown because of that. I acquired a new audience, if you like. And I think people didn't even know that I was from up north. Most people thought that I was very privileged and had grown up, you know, very wealthy because I didn't really show where we lived. We lived in a ground floor flat, so I was never posting about my house online because I didn't really want people to know where we lived. So it was all that that kind of, oh my God, she's pulled back the curtain and she's just normal like us. And there was that relatability that maybe I hadn't had in my content before. So there was a bit of that as well. I've been really fortunate to maybe be vulnerable in periods of my life where it was rewarded. And I look at that, that chatty, you know, throw myself bare. I always think that was a, not deliberate, but a very smart decision for my Instagram at the time. You see a lot of people doing it now, so it's not maybe as a bigger deal but back then no one else really did it yeah you're right and now tiktok obviously has kind of encouraged that movement of being so transparent but yeah back in when was lockdown 2020 back then it wasn't really a thing it was it was cool to be glossy and perfect yeah. and you first appeared on national tv um while someone uh was shooting a documentary about a fast fashion brand yeah that's right? right tell me more about that experience well that was quite daunting at the time because i'd been designing a collection for a brand and it was going really well and then we it was kind of put on the table that they're going to have a documentary and it was a bbc doc so in your head you're thinking it's not going to be too kind of you know risque i'm probably in safe hands how do they feel about following me and john you know for parts of my experience of developing a collection so I think they came with us to France on an influencer trip. Do you know what? It was really, it was a good experience for me. And I don't think I came off badly from it. Yeah. Was that a tipping point for your, um, I guess, brand, personal brand? It probably should have been, but no, I don't think it was. Mm. I don't think it had, I think I thought it would have more gravitas. I always thought being on telly. Yeah, I would have thought so. Would mean that I'd made it. And actually I've just done a, a home show with Abby Clancy. Yeah, I've seen a preview. I yeah. need to go watch it. But the traction from that's been unreal. I've never known anything like it. Mm. And I've, I've grown from that. Yeah. So I think it depends who is at the helm of the show because Abby's got such clout in that sense that she's brought a lot of audience to me. But back then, yeah, I didn't feel like I actually got much from it. I think I cringed a little bit to listen, you know, to the interactions between John and I and stuff. I'm like, oh my God, am I really sounding like that? But one thing that came from it was a lot of people said to me, oh my God, you're such a girl boss. Like you were so like bossy and, you know, you were so driven. Yeah, you came across really well. Yeah, I knew what show. I wanted. And I still do. I think that's the key really, isn't it? Knowing yeah. what you want. Aside from being on the documentary, have you learned a lot of skills through that experience? Through the experience of working with a brand? Mm -hmm. I think that I went into that experience not really feeling my oats. I felt like I was somebody that was a bit of kind of imposter, 
there weren't many influencers doing those collections at the time. It was mainly celebrities. But I knew I had quite an engaged audience. The community we'd built, they knew me, I knew them. So I was able to listen and chat. And I didn't design a collection off just like a whim. It was very much built on, what do you actually want? And I'll go and make it. And the team that I worked with on that first collection were just so positive and enthusiastic. So when we launched it, I think it sold out within the first day. I think then the brand were kind of like, wow, I didn't expect that. Yeah. And since then, and I think I've spoken to someone who used to work there during yeah. that period and she said it was mental. Yeah, it was. It was like a really big reaction that wasn't expected. Not even mm. me expected it. And I thought, oh, I found my call in here because I really like clothes. And also back then it was very much kind of not, a, it wasn't a size inclusive kind of place, was it? Shopping, fast fashion. Pretty much everything went up to about size 16. And I was kind of the person to be pushing, pushing, asking for more sizes. Let's just go a bit like more varied. Let's do petite, let's do tall. That was really important to me because I knew we had the, we had the customer. We just needed to create the clothes. So it was, yeah, it was lovely. It was a great experience. And you launched your own brand recently, LA Space. Tell me more. Yeah, so LA Space launched officially in October of last year. So it's really new. It's like a baby. Do you know, I can honestly say it's the most terrifying thing I've ever done because it's my own money. I had to kind of explain to John that we were going to use all my savings, that he'd you know, probably been planning for other things and be like, come on, let's back ourselves. We, let's put something out there that's just truly us. I know we've got the audience, we've got the customer base there. The price point is slightly higher because specifically with the numbers and the volume of what we're creating, it's very hard to get, you know, any factory or supplier to do you a deal. Yep. So we've had to pay pretty much, you know, whatever they want to make stuff. But in a way, that's been quite telling for me because that price point that I had when I've created collections in the past was a lot less. And so it was a big gamble to go and make a higher kind of value item. It's still, it's still quite accessible. I would it's call access it accessible luxury. It, is, it absolutely is accessible. And like up at the minute, the highest price point we have is a, a coat that's 400 quid. So it is accessible to people that are maybe looking to invest in their wardrobe long term. But it was still a lot more money than what people were used to spending with me. Yeah. And that's been really an education piece on my part to them and vice versa and explaining that we're using, you know, less polyesters, we're using natural fibres and some things are hand-stitched. And, you know, all those are really important yeah, things yeah. that actually you wouldn't know unless someone pointed it out to you. Yeah. And how long was the planning process? And tell me all about it and uh, the concept behind it. Because you've got a very interesting concept. People are shopping from your mood board. I, I love that. Yeah, I'd always had mood boards and I'd always kind of brainstormed imagery every day. I'd, I'm mood board every day, I always have done. I never know what I'm going to wear. So I always figured if I went on Pinterest and Tumblr and pulled together images, it'll eventually help me out of a rut when I don't know how to style my stuff. And so I'd had this mood board page called LA Space for years and years. And I'd just throw on images there that inspired me. So that was always going to be part of the process when I launched LA Space. But about a year ago now, I started to think, right, if I'm going to build a brand, I need to start hiring people to help me do this journey. I think the obvious solution when you're building a brand is to hire someone to create the product. And we didn't do that. The first thing we did was hire someone to build the brand. So the branding became the focal point of the content we first put out there. So before we had any product to market, any idea of what we were going to make, we started to create our brand and we kind of wanted to position ourselves as a brand that wasn't specifically feminine or masculine. I wanted it to reflect me 
And the fact that I'm quite zero fuss, I don't like frou-frou or I'm just not a fussy girl. So that was really exciting to be working with people that are at the top of their game in branding. They, the girl that developed our website had worked on Reformation and some really big kind of big hitter brands. And yeah, it was just incredibly exciting to see it all come together. And it was only once we had the branding nailed that I started to think about what product do I want to make now? that fits within that aesthetic. How did you put together your first collection? The first collection was always going to be a mood board of classics. So it was kind of like a benchmark for the brand to set our stall out. So you knew who we were about. You knew that the quality was there. I knew that I wanted certain pieces, things that I couldn't maybe find or things that I'd bought in the past, but it wasn't quite right. And it, yeah, we just started from there, really. I knew I was going to do a cotton T-shirt because actually a T-shirt is a base foundation of all my other looks. So I needed things that you, if you wanted to put the whole look together, I wanted people to be able to buy the whole outfit, which actually most people don't tend to do. There's not many people that buy a full look from a shop. So it was quite nice to be able to build a capsule, if you like, that would always be the benchmark for the brand. And then the subsequent collections we've launched have been less about that. They've been more about just pieces that I love and really want to wear. So you have to start with the first collection and then build on top of that. I think you don't have to do that. I think we wanted to do that. And we deliberately bought volumes that, although a lot of them were minimums, we knew that we would be sat on those products for quite a while. I didn't invest in those pieces knowing that they'd sell out in a day. So that was kind of the plan. And I think anyone that is looking to build a brand from scratch, I think you have to be really smart with your, your buying. Like my merchandiser was the third hire. And my merchandiser basically rules my world like oh wow that's quite advanced because I feel like I didn't have a merchandising team until five or six years really? into the business yeah I feel like she's absolutely like but it's such an important me. role it's so important we at one point we wanted a buyer and actually we thought we don't need a buyer we need a merchandiser we need numbers mm. my husband before he retired he's a stats man he was in pensions and insurance so he's a real numbers bloke so he loves it he loves a spreadsheet he loves talking about stats <laughs> he tells me you know my merchandiser reports every week what isn't shifting what need what's selling too quickly what needs pushing where we shouldn't maybe spend in the future so it's a really good way of looking at who's your customer. Yeah. But then there's obviously things that we're not going to agree on. My, I'm sure my merchandiser would prefer it if I didn't do plus size. We got up to a size 24 and it's a really expensive venture in that to have plus size. Anything basically above size 16 is mm. considered an, its own category by a yeah. supplier. But it's part of your values to be inclusive, right? I think it is. And I think that my community is inclusive. So it makes sense that I represent yeah. what I am and who I mix with. The customer isn't quite there yet for that. And that's been tough for me to watch. Oh, that's so interesting. And you talked about the learning process of price points and things like that. Tell yeah. me more. Well, obviously, again, merchandiser, king of pricing. <laughs> we definitely do start a collection looking at what what is our maximum RRP? What are we genuinely prepared to spend on this? And if we're not prepared to spend any more than that, then we don't make it if we can't bring it in under that price. There are always going to be those pieces that for me, I'll be like, do you know what? We're not going to make much profit on it, but it'll get people through the door. It'll get them excited. I can't wait to wear it. I'm thrilled to have put this out to market, but is it going to pay my mortgage in 10 years? No, mm -hmm. but I think pricing is so important and we didn't want to be a discount brand. I can relate to this with Astrogen Mew because historically there aren't loads of discount codes attached to Astrogen Mew. You know, it's a premium product and very rarely is there a code available. And I kind of wanted to mimic that in a way. And if we do do a discount, it'll be maybe two, three times a year maximum. 
and we'll really think about it. And, and if you're value. priced fairly, you don't need to discount, right? Because yeah. you're already giving a good value to your customers. Yeah, and the quality of just the packaging and the way that we deliver our products in nice little dust bags and everything's been thought through, the silk tags and everything feels good. And I'm proud to put my name to it. So how big yeah. is your team? So the team right now, I've got, including John, because John is now working with me. What is John's title? John doesn't have a title. I think he kind of thinks of himself, he's looking over there. He kind of thinks of himself as like a co-founder, which he is. But I'd say that he is somebody that is basically my chief financial officer, even though he's probably not legally allowed to say that. But he's definitely somebody that's monitoring the finances. Yeah. And he's my go, no, go. He will say, no, you can't. You can't order that. We can't book that because it's just not price efficient at all. So he's quite smart mm. when the numbers are concerned. Yeah, it's good to have a numbers person. So good. Yeah. So tell me about your relationship with John. So you were married and he joined you um, at Lorna Lux a yeah. few years ago. And now he's de facto co-founder at LA Space. Yeah, he, well, he'd always taken my photographs for Instagram. So normally when he was at work, I would, I think he used to start work at like five in the morning and he worked in Canary Wharf. At the time we were living in Brighton. So it was like an hour and a half drive. So I would get up with him and leave the house at 4am. We'd drive into Canary Wharf and then we would shoot my outfit of the day. And then I would get a train home and he would stay at work. Wow, that's intense. So that was my day to day. I would be in, I'd be back home by 10. And then I'd have that whole day to post the pictures engage with the community and that was like my little routine if you like so then when the Instagram kind of grew and the brand partnerships grew and obviously I started to create my own collection so that I took a huge amount of work involved in terms of shooting it he was like my wingman really and he shot everything and it was only I think after lockdown that we kind of made the decision that he was ready to retire and come and work with me full time so now we work together daily as your designated photographer and yeah. CFO and pretty much everything else. Support and the photos system. look so professional. Yeah, he's great. W isn't was he, he really always into photos? He was says he, he wasn't, but he's got an eye. His mum was an artist. He's got a good eye. His brother's yeah. an artist. So I think he's just got that innate ability. And he always looks for how will I look good. He'll always try and take me at my best. And he'll oh, tell dream me. Dream husband. Yeah. He'll be honest. He'll be like, no, you, you know, tuck that in or. Yeah. You need to stand straight, so don't lean. You know, he's that guy. Yeah, we were just talking earlier that behind every successful influencer is a patient of course. husband. Of course. And if you don't have that, I think that's the reason that a lot of influencers pal up and you'll see two mates. And it's always that thing of which one's going to fly because quite often you'll get two girls shooting one another and one of them will become a massive deal mm. and the other one might not have the same edge. And it's quite interesting to watch. I've seen it happen time and again in London. Oh, do you see the dynamics change between the two? I think they have to change, don't they? Just by, you know, virtually the fact that one's getting the opportunity, the other one isn't. Yeah. I never had that to play with. I always made friends with a lot of influencers because I was turning up to all these events back then. So I knew a lot of people very quickly. And I'm that girl that'll just get on with people that I've got, you know, no qualms about chatting to anyone. I think it's really important, actually. You know, networking is so key to you know, having that support system, those alliances. And even when we launched LA Space, I, you know, I did ask people, can I gift you a piece while you wear it? And some didn't, but most people did. 
So it paid off in that sense. Yeah. So how do you work with influencers? Do you work in the traditional sense, like a brand, or because you're an influencer and you're friends with loads of these girls, you work slightly differently, you have an advantage? So at the minute I work slightly differently, but that is not the plan for the brand. The brand will be to work in paid partnerships. I think that's really the only way to go. Mm. I think that being able to support one another is important. So I don't want to be calling in favours left and right. But this first couple of months and first collection, it was it was nice actually to just see people support. Mm. And you want to know whether they genuinely love yeah. the products, right? Yeah, and it was a nice way for me to be able to just share, you know, gift them something that I've made and share in that. I was owed a lot of favours. I've always historically done favours for people throughout my entire Instagram career. So it was nice to call a few favours back, to be honest. But in terms of going you know, long term on creating content, because there's so much in, there's so much value in a creator making content that you can use as well as them posting on their channel. And I think where I've gifted people in the past, I have felt quite conscious about repurposing the content for myself because then it feels a bit like I should at that point be paying them for it. So I think just from a conscience and a moral obligation, it's really important that you know, as a brand, we are doing paid partnerships. And what is the best practice for a brand? Well, I definitely think stats are really important. Yeah. I get obviously a lot of people approach me wanting to do paid partnerships for LA Space. And the first thing I'll always say is, what is it you're looking for? What kind of content do you want to create for me? And what, how do you envisage me using the content, if at all? And then what are your stats? Show me your stats. And usually 90% of influencers at that point go quiet. They don't want to share those stats. And I think that's a bit of a, a red flag for me because stats are kind of really important. And that's yeah. what I'm proud to show mine. Well, what are the stats you're looking for? Because a lot of the stats you can see on their page. You say that, but I want to see impressions and reach on their mm. main posts. Yeah, I want to see engagement with those that reached the post. And I also want to see specifically stories because stories for me is where I... I bring a lot of value, I think, because me and my community, that's where we natter. So I'm constantly on stories, sharing stories about what I'm up to. And they're replying back. And then we're building this dialogue. So there's a lot that goes on there that isn't public. So I think those stats are quite important. And also those calls to action, because we're a new brand. So we don't have the luxury of just spraying and praying, you know, putting 500 people in LA space, hoping something bites. Every single piece is a considered gift, if you like. And that's just the nature of a small brand. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really important for me that I'm not going in blind. And especially if I'm gifting someone that I don't know, which quite often the people that are asking for it, I don't know them. So that's really where I stand. I'm sure, listen, I'm so new to this that in a year's time, this chat could be so different. Well, we can have you back in a year's time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what is the vision as it currently stands? So the vision right now for the brand is that we we don't want to grow exponentially without taking our community with us so we want to build our audience really we want that repeat customer so I'm looking at average you know order spend I want to grow that but I also want to grow repeat customers how many people came back to us so that's my focus for this first year Um, not pushing out collections you know for the sake of pushing them out we're launching something this month but then we've got a massive gap until May before we launch anything else so then it's about creating content around existing product and not having loads of clothes, just sat around doing nothing. You know, the beauty of making a small brand is that pretty much nothing's going to go in landfill. We're going to sell out. That's the game plan. It's a small vision, if you like. There's no big plans yeah. this year. Yeah, I love that. 
There's, What's yeah. the overlap between your audience and LA-based audience? I mean, I would say that pretty much everybody that is an LA-based customer follows me. That My makes sense. SEO guy is desperate to change that. Yeah, because in a way, it's a it's a risk and an opportunity Massively. at the same time, right? We want to get to a position where a customer finds us through Google or through an influencer and then stays with us. And I wasn't even involved in it. But I would say that right now what I'm seeing is that if something has multiple sales around it, it's probably because I've spoken about it. Yeah. I've not found many influencers that have driven multiple sales. Yeah. There's a couple. I'll tell you later who they are. They're brilliant. And I don't even think they realize their value. It's really rare when you find someone that mentions a product and then there's like this zoom. Yeah. Of like I guess sales. it's multiples of things, right? People are following LA Space because you are the founder. Yeah. And also, like, you've got such great selling power. Aww. We work with you, right? And yeah. you are one of our best performing influencers. I think as well, there's a real genuine affiliation between you and I in that I've worn the brand for so long. Yeah, it's so genuine. If it is genuine and I enjoy, you know, I'm a girly girl, so I enjoy makeup, I like jewelry, I like pretty things. And I think people sense when I'm talking about the brand that I'm giddy about it and they get in they join me in that giddiness and like you said before you know it's great value because it isn't ridiculously expensive but the product is brilliant oh, it's having you it's, tell me more <laughs> it's important though right it's so important yeah it's so important I think yeah I think our connection is like very very genuine people can see through it yeah I agree I do agree what's the toughest thing you had to do along the journey as an influencer and as a brand founder I think some of the toughest decisions that I've had to make have been regarding having to pivot in periods where things have changed up. So knowing now that the algorithm is so changeable and terrifying uh, across all platforms, you know, we talk about TikTok and the fact that a, a piece of content that you think is crap can be viral. <laughs> and then you've, you know, you've busted a gut on a piece of content for a month and nobody saw it. So probably the biggest, most kind of daunting process for me is how do I change things up? What's not working? How can I change it? And that goes all the way back to when I first joined Instagram. I remember I would post everything against a white wall because back then that was my aesthetic and the algorithm loved that. And then the algorithm ch changed up and it didn't love it anymore. And I didn't want to just get lost in the vat of other people that kept peddling something that wasn't working. Yeah. How do you know when to switch it up and how quickly do you react to it? And do you have a constant process? The constant process is analytics. So always analyzing what's performing well versus what isn't. And just seeing what's converting. Mm -hmm. Having a brand makes that even more interesting because most brands will not tell you what you've sold for them. Very rarely will they give you a stats report on how well you've done for them. But I've got my own brand now, so I can see how well it's done. So constantly monitoring those stats and then tweaking things accordingly. One thing that I'm saying at the minute is that content that is storytelling. So say, for example, on Main Grid for Instagram, people have developed a passion for those kind of 10 carousel posts that are all different things that reflect that person's day or that person's week, that content's doing really well right now on social. And if you're an influencer that isn't doing that content, like do it because it's such an easy way of- Oh, you know, that's interesting. I didn't a, know that. Yeah. And I think that if I was going to commission a piece of paid content from an influencer right now, I'd probably ask them to do that kind of like product placement within a carousel of other things to align the brand with other things that they love because people are inherently quite nosy. And it's quite nice to see someone's 10 pictures of what they've been up to. So I get that that's, I understand why that's doing well. But it's just identifying those trends. Absolutely. And is that analytic something that John does for you or like you are obsessed with as well? I'm, yeah, I'm obsessed with that. 
So you're a numbers gal too. Yeah, I am. But mainly because I've seen that it works. I don't deliberately. I think as well because I'm on online so much. So I can't avoid it. I probably sometimes do it without even realizing. Do you ever switch off? I do, but I do struggle. And I always read. I love reading. So I've got a Kindle and I'm always reading books. But I find that I always have my phone at the side of my Kindle. And I could be midway through a chapter and all of a sudden I'd be like, right, I'm just going to go and reply to some messages, which is terrible. But that's just, that's who I am. Yeah, I guess it's your life and your job. Yeah, and I can't can't not do it. And because I like replying to all my messages, I could never just sit there at night and do it all in one go. It'd take me hours. So I try and do like maybe 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. When I was driving here, John drove and I was just on my phone replying. So it's just almost trying to keep on top of it. It's like doing your homework, I look at it. Like I need to just get my homework done so that I won't get behind. A bit addictive. Yeah, it is. And what's next for you, Lorna Lux and LA Space? I think that what's next for me this year is probably to get back really in the saddle of creating content daily. I'd slowed it down last year because obviously I was building the brand. We'd moved house. My husband had had cancer, so he was going through chemotherapy and stuff, and it was just all a bit overwhelming and then I think over Christmas we'd gone on holiday and I said to John I think I've got some kind of PTSD because I've got no inclination to take a photograph of anything I almost don't want to look at my phone and so I had a bit of a kind of like a week off if you like where I just didn't really bother with it but you know what it doesn't feel like as your fan and follower it doesn't feel like you've paused and the funny thing was when we were on holiday the weather was really bad so we were there for two and a half weeks but the weather was actually good for about four and so the days when it was really bad weather, I just thought, I'm just not going to take any photos of this because it doesn't bring me any joy. I'm relaxing. I'm having spa treatments. I'm drinking the rosé, eating the food. And it really forced me to just have a day off. So when I've come back in January, I felt very energized yeah. for the first time in a long time, actually. Oh, so you enjoyed that? You enjoyed yeah. that moment of peace? I think and... it did me a world of good. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. And what's one advice you'd give a budding content creator or a brand founder? I think that so often we question ourselves and we just don't do it in the end. Specifically for content creators, it might be, oh, I'm not going to post that. No one wants to see it. What's the worst that can happen? So I think post whenever you can. And if you don't like it afterwards, you can always take it down. But to just put yourself out there, that repetition, that consistency Mm. is so key. Because if you're not online, you're you're basically irrelevant. Yeah, I hear that all the time from content creators. Consistency, consistency, that seems is so to be important. the key word. And I think that's with everything, isn't it? Mm. Even with you know LA space, consistently focusing on what was what's next. How can we better ourselves? What can we do better? We're constantly, you know, workshopping the brand, trying to make it the best it can be. Do you schedule everything in your calendar? How do you make sure you're disciplined and consistent? So. Funny enough, I've like obviously watched a few episodes of this show that I've really enjoyed, and quite often that seems to come through. People are quite like disciplined. Discipline is something that I struggle with. I think I actively avoid being too disciplined because in my head it ruins my creative flow. Everyone around me is super disciplined. My team, they're all on it from nine to five, Monday to Friday. They're in, they're doing their thing. I'm very much tapping in and out, but I definitely have those tendencies of being really hyper-focused for 30 minutes, then I'm bored. I don't want to do something else now. Fed up with that. And I think that rather than try and go against it and and force myself into a box, I just kind of let it flow. If I'm not feeling it, I'm not feeling it. The beauty of having your own business is that you kind of write your own ticket in that sense, but the work has to get done. Absolutely. I probably work longer hours than the average nine-to-fiver, but I do it probably you know 12 till 10 or you know I I constantly 
I'm switching in and out of what suits me. I sometimes stay up till four in the morning. John will be like, go to bed. You need to sleep. <laughs> Do but you sometimes email your team at 4 a.m.? Because never. you have an idea. Yeah, that's good. I try not to message them unless it's nine to five Monday to Friday. My designer really is very kind of like works late, loves working at one in the morning. Will, you know, DM me on Instagram with mood boards and we're both real visual people. Mm. But that's our dynamic. And even though we're, ch- we're messaging on Instagram, it's not on WhatsApp. It's not flashing on their phone. Yeah, so it doesn't feel like work. It feels like, yeah, more like just hobby. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wouldn't like that. If someone was texting me at 11 o'clock at night, like, you know, this isn't their brand. Mm. They shouldn't have to feel yeah. obligated to reply. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you are the boss, right? I am the boss. And I said to John, I don't feel like I'm a good manager. And he said, you're not a good manager. You're a good leader. What's the difference? Well, I think leadership is more about trusting people and giving them the right resources to get the job done and letting them know that if they don't feel they can do that, that I'm there to support them and not judge Mm -hmm. them. I'm not saying that we're like best mates and that my team are like my bosom buddies, but we've all got a lot of respect for one another. We never have real big disagreements. We just get on with it. Mm. And luckily we've not really had any bad hires. There's been a couple where it's not worked out. The first maybe for the personality, the second because... What they, prov- what they were offering us was mediocre. And my kind of thought process with hiring is if they're doing something at my level or above, then great. But if they're not able to do it at the level I want it, then what's the point? There's no point in them being there. I might as well just do it. And I think there's a bit of a control freak tendency of mine <laughs> to think, well, I could have done so much better than that. And I think, you know, if you're consistently seeing someone underperforming and not being able to do, that's the job, you know, you had one job. It sounds strange to say it out aloud, but I really believe that hiring people that are better at the job than you is so important. Yeah, absolutely. That's why you hire them, right? Yeah. You're like, we're not experts in anything. No, I'm not. I'm definitely not. I'm not either. Yeah. So like everyone I hire, they're so much better than me. Did you feel like when you first started to hire Farashid and me that there was a sense of kind of obligation to get it right? I was quite different. I didn't hire specialists from the get-go. Okay. Um, I didn't have that audience. I wasn't an influencer. So it was really from scratch and it was completely bootstrapped. So I hired Sarah, who's our CMO, and she was only 24. So she was a generalist. She joined as my assistant and she was doing everything. Yeah. And I hired a couple of generalists since then. And then now, like, I think only in the last five years, I started hiring specialists like finance, merchandising, all of these people. Because I think I look at the the hire there's hires that we've made and they're all specialists. We've got a garment tech, mm. we've got a merchandiser, you know, we've got an SEO guy. But actually, quite often they're they're having to be generalists because we're such a small brand yeah. and there's no point hiring another person for that. Customer service, which I'm passionate about. I did customer service as a job for years. But yeah, we don't have a customer service dedicated person. We're all just mucking in. I mean, initially, everyone needs to do customer services. I think it's so important to know your customers. Yeah, and also to have a tone of voice. Absolutely. And set kind of a a barrier, really, of like how we're going to handle ourselves if things don't go right. I think customer services is a hybrid of marketing Mm. and social media. So true. And sales, everything, right? Of course, answering DMs, I become a bit of a customer service gal most nights anyway. Yeah, 100%. And not wanting to annoy people or, you know, I want them to come back again. Yeah. But if things have gone wrong or the delivery guy hadn't turned up or whatnot, it's just trying to pacify, isn't it? And explain. Yeah, absolutely. But also own the problem and not put it back on the customer. Customers don't care what your process is. No, they don't. Yeah, it's so true. Okay, quick fire. Tips to elevate your work wardrobe. That's a very good one. I think that if you're on a budget, 
stick to black leather for black bags leather. and oh, accessories. Oh. And trousers think, too? Yeah, because I think that black tends to tarnish less and tends to look expensive. So if you're on a bit of a budget and you don't know what accessories, just stick with black. Brown and tan can age and can start to look quite battered quite quickly. And I also think if you're going to spend money, spend it on the really statement silhouettes. Don't mess about spending money on a white shirt. No one will know. Take it to the tailor. You could take a really cheap white shirt from ASOS and get it tailored and it'd look like Balenciaga. But certain pieces, that fine coat or that, you know, cashmere wrap or whatnot, that's where you spend your money on. Love that. Three staple pieces to always have in your wardrobe. Definitely got to have a pair of jeans in there. I love denim. They've seen me through some tough times. Yeah. Which so fit? I like a straight leg fit and I like a high waist because I carry a lot of weight around my middle. And I think that's the most flattering. No, you don't. <laughs> well, exactly. I wish I was wearing jeans now. But I really believe in straight leg suits my shape with a tiny amount of lycra. Just a tiny amount. Ooh. In fact, we've not done jeans for LA Space because I'm so kind of scared to get it wrong. Because it's such a personal thing, isn't it? Jeans. Mm. And I don't want to just launch something and it be yeah. mediocre. Yeah, and the fit is so important in it's jeans. so important. And I think my other two classics have got to be a white t-shirt and a black blazer. I was born in the 80s. So I'm, you know, my influence is, you know, Melanie Griffith in Working Girl, that kind of like 80s oversized blazers and tailoring and yeah. but worn with, you know, a pair of sneakers and a jean. So that's kind of my aesthetic anyway. But those things seem to revolve around my closet. They work the hardest for me. How do you pick pieces that are timeless? I don't deliberately set out to buy things for any specific occasion. So I tend to buy what I love as I see it, which is a bit of a luxury, actually. Mm. I've not got you know, a specific job where I have to, you know, nine to five, be dressed in X, Y and Z. So my pieces that I'm going to have forever are usually, it's more driven by the shape and the cut. And I've probably spent a bit of money on it. Yeah. And the le leather jacket you're wearing, yeah. I guess for people that are just listening on the podcast, like I've seen this on your feed yeah. day and day. Like I after. love it. What, what was the th thought process of purchasing that item? Because it's a high ticket item, isn't it? You got it from yeah, YSL. Yeah. And I think that whole, I think what Vaccarello did with that, that whole collection was about that 80s reference, that power dressing. And when we were first creating our LA Space collection, We were using a lot of those similar references because I wanted this kind of power dynamic of a powerful woman feeling confident in her clothes. And we'd launched um, a herringbone coat, which is called Morgan Coat, which is really like over-exaggerated shoulders. And it feels, you when you put it on, you feel in charge and in control. Yeah, I love that coat, and I, by the way. Yeah, and I love that feeling. And Vaccarello's collection did that. The whole collection, in fact, d does that. It's about a powerful woman. Even the models he used for the runway, they look so, that like they've got their their shit together they just look great so when I'd seen this jacket I'd had it on mood boards multiple multiple times and then so you had to get in it. the end I was like why I think this is the one I think I'm going to wear this listen it's quite a marmite jacket I know that on my dms a few people were like no not feeling I love that. it I like it John liked it <laughs> and if I, I always think with an expensive piece can I wear it five or six ways and if I can then it's like I've got to do this because I'll regret it And it's sold out now. Due to you wearing it. I don't think it is due to me, sadly, but I think it was I'm just... I'm sure it is. I imagine they probably don't make that many of them. Yeah, and it's a very particular piece as well. So particular. We actually, as a team, my team had a meeting at the house last week and I brought the jacket, laid it on the table. And my garment tech was like analyzing the way they'd cut. And we were all just fascinated because this is, you know, it's 
piece of art, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, it was so nice having you, Laura. Oh, thank you. I feel like we've not been chatting for long. It feels like I've only been here five minutes. Yeah, I know. We could have chatted for ages. <laughs> it was so inspiring. I had so much fun. Oh, it was such you. an exciting chat. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.